We read the letter to the Hebrews a lot more than we read Ecclesiastes. And it's a lovely book, because it's a book, we believe, written to people who had come out of Judaism and had become Christians, but were getting a bit fearful. There were too many new things. They'd been taken out of their comfort zone, and life was a lot more comfortable back in the old ways. And so, if you like, the theme of the letter to the Hebrews is that God is a God who loves new things. It's a contrast between the old and the new, between religion and life. And you'll notice there are several new things in this passage. I want to highlight that in verse 20, the writer says that we come to God now by a new and living way. A new and living way. Not just new, but a way that's living. You see, you could say that throughout Hebrews, the theme is that in the past, the old ways chained us to dull ritual where our own limitations pull us down and continually hamper us in trying to serve God. They had a system for dealing with this, of priests offering sacrifices, of forgiveness of sins through animals being slain on the altar. But as the writer points out, these could never deal with sin. People still were the same after they'd been and bought their animal for sacrifice, after the priest had offered this sacrifice on the altar in the temple, after they'd said all the right words and done all the right things, it still left people just where they were in the old ways, with their limitations, with their sins. These sacrifices, says the writer, could never, never take away sins. Day after day, priests offering sacrifices. It sounds like Ecclesiastes 1 all over again, doesn't it? Who can show us anything new? Sounds like Shakespeare, doesn't it? Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. The Old Testament sacrifices, says this book, were an interim measure designed to establish the principle that without shedding of blood, there can never be any remission of sins. To establish the principle, but not to deal with the problem, the real answer was still to come in the future. And there's a wonderful contrast here in this passage, isn't there? Day after day, the old Jewish priests stood there at the altar offering their sacrifices, which was their job. But this priest, this priest, Jesus, Where are we? 10 verse 12. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now the huge difference between Jesus and the Old Testament priest was this. Jesus was the sacrifice. He didn't just offer someone else's blood, a creature's blood, to pay the price of sins. He offered his own blood which is a wonderful thing and something I don't think that any of us really fully appreciate, that the the Son of God himself stood in my place and offered his body and his blood as a sacrifice for my sins. Nothing that I can bring to God can achieve my forgiveness. 
no matter how many sermons I preach, no matter how many good works I do, no matter how pure a life I live, cannot take away sins. We come to Jesus and he is the new and living way. It's not a ritual. The new and living way is a person. And being a Christian is relationship with a person. It's not just knowing how this church works, what songs we sing, what the system is for this, that or the other, who you have to speak to to get things done. They said all these things are parts of the mechanics of a church. But being a Christian is having a relationship with Jesus. And that's a new, and that's a living way. And it's living because it's alive. And I can say I've been a Christian for 50 years, and yet God wants me to see this day as being a new day, a day of new opportunities to serve him. What else is in this passage? Well, in verse 16, the writer talks about a covenant. And it's a new covenant. He's harking back to words from Jeremiah chapter 31. And he quotes them here. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Now there was a covenant with the old people of God, with the Jews, made at Mount Sinai through Moses. An old covenant that was in place as an interim measure again. But there was a promise right there running through the Old Testament like a thread of gold that God was planning to do a new thing, a new covenant. Ezekiel prophesied something very similar. He said that God has said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will put my spirit in you and move you from within to follow my laws. It's not a question of just someone saying, thou shalt not do this. God said, I'm going to do the job properly. Just as my son, Jesus, the son of God, is going to be that new and living way. So the way you follow him is not by obeying a set of rules, it's by opening yourself to God's spirit to allow him to recreate you from within. This is the new covenant. And we know when that came into effect, don't we? We commemorate it regularly in this church when Jesus took the bread and took the wine and said, this, blood, this wine is the new covenant in my blood. The new promise, the new way of doing things that this time will be really effective. The new and the living way. A new heart, a new spirit, new people. Because this covenant is open not just to God's chosen people, the Jews, it's open to them, but also to us. And all sorts of people all around the world, as we are speaking here this morning, all sorts of people of the most unlikely background are coming to put their faith in Jesus Christ, to experience this new and living way, to leave behind them all the rituals of their previous limited understanding, all the dead routines, and to come to a God who does new things. Now I can hear someone saying, "Ah, oh, Mike, that sounds lovely. The words are good. Yeah, I've tried it. I can't keep it up. I can't keep up this business of being a Christian. Well, let me give you an illustration. Have you got a computer? 
If you haven't, you're never too late to learn. We have a friend aged 91 who's just started computer lessons. So no excuse. Twelve years ago, I bought my first computer, and it came with Microsoft Works. And at first it seemed wonderful. I got the hang of putting words together and posting those paragraphs here, there, and everywhere. But after a time, it became limited, and someone showed me I could buy a new package of programs called Office. And I got Microsoft Word and PowerPoint. That was wonderful, playing all those lovely coloured pictures. And then, of course, photo technology. What did I do with my computer when I was aware of its limitations? I didn't throw it on the scrap heap and go back to writing with a fountain pen. I bought a new program and put that inside the computer. Now, that's a very, very poor analogy, I know, of what God, God does with us. But when God wants to change us, he doesn't just keep hammering new rules. He puts his spirit within us. That's the lovely thing about having a new spirit. Listen to these words from first letter of Peter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that lovely the way that he stresses? Peter, when writing that apostle, he stresses through the resurrection because all the founders of other religions are dead. Now, whether you're talking about Muhammad, Buddha, indisputable fact, and it's showing no disrespect to them, they are dead. That's a fact. Jesus, our saviour, as is testified by this word, as is testified by his spirit within us, Jesus is alive. Praise God. We don't look back on a dead hero. We don't look back on a great teacher who gave us rules to keep. We celebrate a new and a living way. A Jesus who is alive, who has given us a new birth and a living hope. We could meditate on those words all day, couldn't we? A living hope. Does your life seem hopeless this morning? In Jesus we have a living hope because he has promised to fill us if we open our hearts and our minds to him. He has promised to fill us and to enable us to live out not a routine of dull ritual, but a new life, a new birth, a new and living way, a living hope. If anyone is in Christ, says the Apostle Paul, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We sang about it. Isn't that a wonderful song? He is a new creation. All things have become new. Okay. The picture I'm thinking of is planting a seed. And that seed is perfect, but it's still got a long way to go. It's alive. You plant it in the flower pot, and um, if you're a child, you'll keep scuffing at the earth to see if it's growing. But it is growing, and it's perfect, and it grows and sends up a shoot, and that shoot is perfect, and it sends forth leaves, and those leaves are perfect. It's perfect, it's growing. It's not standing still, it's not dead. It's growing and growing, and flowers come, and they're beautiful, and it's still perfect. It's different from what it was, it's more developed, it's moved on. But it's perfect all the way through. The Christian experience is like being reprogrammed. A new spirit within us, a new heart. 
God does something within us that makes us want to please him. Find out what pleases the Lord, says the Apostle Paul in Ephesians. We have a new desire to please God, to please him. It's new. I didn't used to be like this. God does something and changes us. Or to use a different New Testament metaphor, if you like. If you don't like the idea of being reprogrammed, the New Testament says it's as though we've been buried with Christ, with his death, and then raised to new life, just as he was. And it's wonderful, isn't it? This is a thing for all of us, for us as a people, but we enter this new and living way one at a time. And you don't become part of this new experience just by occupying a seat in this church, even by taking part in its activities. We become a new Christian by admitting that we do have sins that need taking away. That those sins are not taken away by regular church going any more than they were taken away by a priest offering animal sacrifices. That those sins are only taken away when we confess our sins. And when we look to Jesus, that new and living way, as one who himself was that once and for all sacrifice for our sins. But there are commandments, aren't there? You'll be thinking about this Christian life. But Jesus emphasized one commandment above all. A new commandment I give you, said Jesus. It's not like the old ones where you have to grit your teeth and try to keep them. A new commandment, and it's easy, yet in some ways it's the most difficult of all. A new command I give you that you love one another, said Jesus just shortly before he was to be nailed to that cross. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. Oh, you say, well, that's years old. That's not a new command. But it is. It's a new command because it comes to us afresh every time we're challenged by the reflection that it's so easy to slip back into the old ways. The old ways of jealousy, of rivalries, of being offended, of lack of forgiveness. Oh, I don't have anything to do with her. She upset me. Oh, no, I can't stand him. I don't talk to him. These things happen in churches. And it is terrible. It is a contradiction of all that we're looking at this morning. A new commandment I give you, and we take it, I take it this morning as a new commandment coming to me, that if there is a lack of love, in my heart, I hear this morning from the God who loves new things that he's wanting me to enter into a new attitude to people I don't get on with, to viewpoints that I just automatically discard as being worthless, a new attitude of being open and loving. The love of Christ constrains us. Are we locked into the old way, the old ritual, the ritual that's dominated this world's history for so many centuries of hatred, envy, bitterness, greed, despising of other people's rights and a centering on my rights and what I like and what I want. That's not the new and living way. That's the old, sad, repetitive, depressing way. The new and living way is Jesus' way of love. And it's sad that so often there is a lack of love in churches over the way we worship. Isn't that sad? More harsh words have been said 
in churches over what we sing and where we sit than over most other things. What does the scripture say about our singing? The scripture says he has put a new song in my heart. A hymn of praise to our God. And we're urged in Ephesians chapter 5 to sing and make melody to the Lord in our hearts. So God doesn't look at what songbook we're singing from. God doesn't look at whether we're using a book or looking at a screen. God doesn't look at whether we're clapping our hands or standing still. God hears the music of our hearts in this service of worship this morning. Is there music in your heart? Is there music in my heart? And God doesn't care what tune we sing that music to. He doesn't care whether we sing flat or whether we've got a beautiful voice. God hears the music of your heart and my heart, and that's the music he's longing to hear. He's put it there. He's put it, he doesn't want us to stifle it. He wants that new song to ascend to him in worship. We don't just make music in church, do we? What sort of music are our lives making? What sort of music is my life making during this week? Are we echoing the tired old song of a fallen world, complaints, criticism, self-pity? So easy, isn't it? We easily slip into that tired old song. But it's a matter of allowing God's outpoured love to flow through me and to be a song of joy. And I want to leave you with one final biblical truth. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Don't conform to this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Now, being a Christian is not just about having our souls saved, having our bodies redeemed. God has redeemed our minds too. I think so often... We Christians don't exercise our minds as much as we should. There are brilliant people out there now trying to destroy our faith, exercising their minds to construct clever arguments, trying to pull our faith to pieces, trying to ridicule people with a faith in God. Are there enough Christians using their minds to fight back? Yes, you may say, ah, Mike, but our faith doesn't consist of arguments. No, it doesn't. And the principal way in which we're going to show our faith is by our love. But we need, as the scripture says, to be ready to give an answer to people who question us as to the hope within us. Is your mind in a rut? Are you thinking the same things as you were thinking ten years ago? Am I thinking the same things? Are my opinions dictated by the newspaper I read or the television discussion program I watch? Am I praying for those Christians whose words are reported in our newspapers, on our television screens? Am I seeking to think things through and think, what does God think about the violence in the Middle East? What does God think about stem cell research? What does God think about assisted suicide? We jump to knee-jerk positions on all these things, don't we? God says, let your mind be renewed. God is the God of new things, new thinking, exploring new avenues, seeing other people's point of view. We take every thought captive, says the Apostle Paul, every thought captive to Christ. 
and make our thinking dominated by Christ's viewpoint of this world. One of my favourite books is The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It's a lovely book. Don't care how old you are. If you haven't read it, get hold of a copy and read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And in that book, the dreadful achievement of the White Witch was to turn living creatures into stone statues. Living creatures, human beings, animals were solidified into stone statues. And it seems to me that one of the major achievements of Satan has been to take the living power of the gospel, the new and living way that Christ preached and the apostles preached, and to turn it into rigid stone institutions, a rigid way of doing things. We've always done it this way, we always will. Oh, no, we can't do that, we've never done it before. Or we tried it 100 years ago and it didn't work. Let's remember that Jesus is a living saviour, he's in our midst and wants us to be a living people. I'm so thrilled about what the outreach team are doing. I'm so thrilled that this Thursday, unknown to me when I was preparing this sermon, that the theme is renewal and revival this Thursday in our prayer meeting. Come along on (coughs) Thursday at 8 o'clock and pray with us for renewal and revival, for we as a church not to be conformed to the way we've always done things, what we've done before, but to think through new things. Charles challenged us as house groups to think of new initiatives. Have you thought of them? Has your house group come up with a new idea for an initiative in reaching out to people who need Christ? To convey to them Not a dead routine, not a dead religion, but a new and effervescent and bubbling life that Christ puts within us, that he gives us because of that new and living hope that he's brought us into. Let us pray. Our Father God, words are easy, and Lord, the words we've been looking at in your Bible are are wonderful words, but Lord... Help us to go from this place and be determined to open our hearts, our minds, our lives, our attitudes to the living power of a living saviour, a saviour who loves to make all things new. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.